Bloom, Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love by Ajahn Sona Chapter 14, Another Word for Trust I'm dwelling a little bit on loving-kindness as I go into this third talk in a row. Maybe it's a sign of aging or maybe just mellowness coming out of retreat. But it's hard to get too much loving-kindness This is my diagnosis of our culture and our time. Psychologists and psychiatrists have written their books trying to get hold of the essential problem in this culture and our time, the age of anxiety and the age of neurosis, the me generation. But my general feeling is that the culture could use a lot more loving kindness for the self, the individual. There's something about our cultural history that creates a lot of harsh atmosphere around oneself. This needs to be focused on, endlessly repeated, as in the introduction to the 11 benefits of loving-kindness, which we chanted tonight. The numbered discourses 11.16, Metta Nisamsa Sutta. The whole introduction to this chant is rather repetitive, It states that this needs to be practiced, needs to be well-started, repeated, done in depth. It's almost overkill. I think the people who translated it had to look really hard for enough synonyms in English just to say, do it again and again. It's not that every word is a new element describing what you need to do. It's mostly two or three different terms, one after the other, for emphasis. Remember, this wasn't written down. You can't underline it. You can't put it in capitals. How do you emphasize something in speech? You say it three times. And so the Buddha went beyond three times there. He said, I can't say this enough. It is profound and sublime. He says that it's the first most valuable emotion in the universe and the second most valuable insight. Of all the emotions... Loving-kindness is the most valuable, and if it's generated for even a finger-snap, it has a potency to it that not only immediately rewards you, but also echoes down through the future until the very last breath of this life. Difficult situations and even the very consciousness that forms at the end of life and beyond will be reshaped by even a finger-snap of universal goodwill. The only thing that's of greater value is insight into impermanence. That's liberation, final liberation. Often it's expressed in many Buddhist teachings, many Buddhist schools, that loving-kindness is limited. It's not the ultimate goal. But the Buddha does explicitly talk about the Brahma-viharas leading up the path. If you have the basic information Loving-kindness flows off the end of samadhi, and out of samadhi arises this insight. At the end of the 11 benefits, it is stated that if one fails to attain nibbana through this cultivation, the booby prize is heaven. Not bad. 
The fact that you have cultivated this profoundly important and highest of the possibilities of emotional happiness is certainly worth aiming for. There are other wonderful emotions in the jhanas. The fourth jhana is characterized by equanimity, upeka. There's some debate in the commentaries about whether you can enter fourth jhana on metta. Maybe some of you are not familiar with jhanas, but this is pretty basic information, not hard to understand. These are very deep states of consciousness where discursive thought disappears, but a profound sense of well-being and ease is present in the mind and body, and all pain has departed the body. One keeps going down deeper into greater and greater stillness, and at the level of the fourth strata of serenity is an exquisite stillness characterized by this sense of perfect balance, equanimity. So they sometimes debate whether it's possible that loving-kindness still persists in that state. There are two opinions, that loving-kindness sort of peters out at the third jhana and there's pure equanimity in the fourth. Others say that no, you can attain the fourth jhana through loving-kindness. Well, I wouldn't want to attempt to resolve the debate. It's a pretty deep one, and greater minds than mine have reflected on this. Suffice it to say that these two things are not enemies. Venerable Nyanaponika, a Western monk esteemed in scholarship and practice who passed on a while back, has a beautiful essay on the four sublime abidings. He explains how, in some ways, they're balancing acts. Loving-kindness is kept from slipping into personal attachment by equanimity. And loving-kindness keeps equanimity from slipping into a condition that's too remote or too cool, perhaps even apathy. Loving-kindness keeps the warmth in equanimity, and equanimity keeps the cool in love. Loving-kindness can go off into attached forms where you're just absorbed in the individual characteristics of beings. But for it to truly be metta, it has to be pried loose from this individual focus. This is very important, and that's where the quality of equanimity in the midst of metta, in the midst of profound friendliness, exists. Psychotherapy and various types of psychology are popular in our culture because very clearly many, many people have all kinds of suffering in their lives and would benefit greatly from assistance with their problems. It's out of compassion that these things are developed. But I would say that the end of all therapy is described in these 11 benefits. The characteristics of distress are the opposite of these 11 benefits. One does not sleep well. One does not wake well. One has bad dreams. One is not dear to humans. Is not dear to non-humans. Even the dog is afraid of you. Don't forget that cats and dogs are not human. So non-human doesn't necessarily mean ghosts although they might be included too. There's a very classic tendency to have problems with disembodied, invisible sorts of agencies when you have troubles. When you have troubles, mysterious, invisible things start to be interested in you. One of the great questions that I don't think Freud ever answered properly, even in his long essay on the subject, is, when is therapy over? When the 11 benefits come to you, then therapy is over. When you can finally sleep, like a baby, innocently, and when you wake refreshed, 
To wake well is to wake after you have slept well. A lot of people who perhaps think they have slept well would be surprised if they had a video camera recording their night. They would see themselves turning and twisting and talking, having a very energetic, sweaty night. People don't sleep well. When I was growing up in my classes, I saw that many of my fellow students were falling asleep in the middle of things all the time. This is a sign of distress. You're not able to completely let go. Your mind is not harmonious enough to free itself from its preoccupations. Most meditators, when they've spent some time meditating, are much more familiar with the workings of the mind than the ordinary person who has never meditated. A person could be very competent, a neurosurgeon or a concert violinist, and still not have very much knowledge about his or her own mind. It's only when you sit and face it, hour after hour after hour, that you really see how the thing works. Then you have a much better possibility of understanding that these activities, these processes that you see in meditation, don't cease just because you're near sleep. Of course, perhaps in the deepest stages of sleep, it must shut down at some point. But this restless motion of the mind persists even in sleep and in dreams. Speaking of which, the Buddha doesn't make much of dreams, although he does talk about them a few times. He recalls a dream he had as a bodhisattva, and he interprets the dream. So he is aware of the information content of the dream, but he definitely does not use it as a focus of technique or anything like this. He does mention that the dream content doesn't need to be analyzed so much, in the same way that the waking content of consciousness doesn't need to be analyzed. You don't need to diagnose yourself so much. Remember that he doesn't really believe in the reality of the individual. He doesn't believe that you really are an existing individual. You are a process. So you do have characteristics. There are swirls and flows which are characteristic of the personality. But these dissolve and move and change at the same time. There's no solid personality but there are characteristics of the flows. The flow of ill will, the flow of desire, the flow of confusion, the flow of agitation, the flow of uncertainty. Then there are the opposites. The flows of joy, of focus, of clarity, the flows of generosity and opening. All of these are flowing events. So the way he talks about the personality, there's nothing personal about it. The flows and the dynamics of these flows are well understood. Each person's anger is unique, in a sense, at the smallest level, but it abides by certain principles. It arises for a certain reason, it is sustained for certain reasons, and it subsides for certain reasons. Keep your mind on that. Your stories about the nature of your anger are not so important. It's the general principles that are important. The Buddha gives you this definition of when your therapy is over. It's over when those streams, the hindrances, have subsided to the extent that they're purified in the consciousness, even in sleep, right to the depths. The contents of the hindrances don't disturb your sleep and don't arise even in your dreams. He doesn't say there are no dreams. For him, it's not the particular contents in the dream 
but rather the emotional tone of the dream that matters. There are psychologies very interested in analyzing the content of a dream. What does this mean? From a Buddhist point of view, we are only interested in the emotional tone of the dream. We don't care what the objects are. We want to know how you felt about it. When the monks go to the forest, they are often assaulted by distressing entities. Some of these are what we would consider to be spirits or something. Perhaps neuroses, projections of the mind, or even real things. Certainly in 5th century BC India, there were a lot of really dangerous things around. Slithery snakes and centipedes, and it's pitch black, and you're alone and vulnerable. The mind can do amazing things with that. Terror occurs. And so this is the therapy for this, when you're able to dwell in loving kindness without being petrified in that forest at night. Remember, it's not a benign forest. Around here, it's fairly benign. But when you're in tropical forests, it's not benign. One of the reflections the monks have is, I must do my practice now, for I may be eaten by an animal soon. The response is not, oh dear, you're just imagining things. No, the other monk got eaten last night, and it was a horrible sound. And you're going to spend the night out there tonight. So yes, it's vividly real, as are the contents of our consciousness and our dreams. They are vividly real because we really are in a world that's full of danger and uncertainty. No wonder we dream. No wonder we're worried, anxious, confused. But is there some other way than living in a concrete bunker to dispense with this inherent sense of danger? That's what this practice is all about. Loving kindness is another word for trust, the absence of defensiveness. That's what you feel. It isn't loving kindness when there's fear mingled with it. Where there's worry, there's a lack of trust. You trust. This doesn't mean that you're unable to understand that other people may have harmful attitudes towards you, or that other animals or beings might not have your best interests in mind. You're not a simpleton. You can be very knowledgeable, but you don't have this sense of suspicion and hostility because such a sense is ultimately not as protective as you might think. Giving up suspicion and hostility doesn't mean that you are now extraordinarily vulnerable. The interesting emphasis that comes in the next reflection is that you are protected from fire, weapons, and poison. Why would he bring that up? Because you just disarmed yourself. Unilateral disarmament. You dropped your swords. By the way, monks are not allowed to have weapons or defend themselves with weapons. You are unilaterally disarming in the midst of hostile people and hostile animals and all kinds of things. You're not waiting for them to put their weapons down. You're going to trust that this attitude is the one that gives you protection from fire, weapons, and poison. I do notice in my readings of the suttas, however, that monks who have cultivated loving-kindness sometimes meet with harm. So is it the case that loving-kindness doesn't protect you? Or is it the case possibly that we could understand fire, weapons, and poison in a deeper way, more as protection from greed, hatred, and delusion? Fire, weapons, poisons. The fire of desire, the weapons of anger, 
the poison of delusion. These you are protected from, and they are far more dangerous than the elements of weapons and so forth. The Buddha died after eating food that was tainted, but he was pretty good at metta, wasn't he? He was also injured by a rock when his cousin attempted to kill him. Part of the rock shattered and cut his foot. Moggallana, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, foremost in psychic power, was beaten to death. So I think that at the deeper level, we can't be hoping for the naive thing that runs against all teachings of the Buddha about the vulnerability of the body to everything in the world, from sharp objects to diseases. He spends quite a bit of time describing all the ways there are to die and all the ways there are to suffer and so forth. This is the nature of the body. No one is free from this. To suddenly say that there is a blanket exemption from this for anybody who does loving-kindness is not true. We have to say that at a deeper level there is protection. You can see it in people. Not everybody responds to the events of life, the encounters with violence, the encounters with illness, etc., in the same way. In fact, some are converting those experiences into something else, which is not threatening, is not a problem. If you see how various people die or come towards the end of their life in a hospice, for instance, they're not all the same. They don't interpret the events around them in the same way. There's a level of protection which is beyond the superficial in the cultivation of loving-kindness that frees the mind from its primary fear, its fear of death. That comes later as one of the benefits. As the time comes towards the experience of dying, one is unconfused, and that means that one is without fear. One dies without confusion. Fear is a form of confusion. Loving-kindness purifies the mind of the dreadful experiences that we have when we cling to life. When we cling to existence, cling against reality, we will feel this tension in all of its versions, including fear and confusion. Loving-kindness dissolves this. It's very, very important. It dissolves this sense of the fear of death because it also is dissolving a lot of the sense of self. One who is full of love has diminished the sense of self to its maximal point. The only thing that could take it farther is to realize that there isn't one. I suppose loving-kindness is a purification of the sense of self by recognizing your universal identity with others. You see yourself in others. You understand how it feels to be another person. This is what is missing in a sociopathic personality who cannot understand or see from another person's view. Empathy and recognition of the self in others comes through the development of loving-kindness. You know how they feel. Even if the person is confused, misinformed, you understand they are seeing it this way, so you're able to not defend your own position so much. You're able to see, well, if I was them and I thought the way they thought, that's how I'd feel too. Loving-kindness doesn't have any anger in it, and a characteristic of anger is a distorted and heightened emphasis on the fault within yourself or within others. This is what loving-kindness doesn't do because the hostility is absent. 
There is no exaggeration of faults, no one-sided, unwise attention to that. Attention is indeed strong in ill will. A characteristic of intelligence is that one can attend in a sustained way to a single topic. And this is also the characteristic of ill will. It can stay in a sustained way on an aspect which is exaggerated, the fault. The function of loving-kindness is to dissolve that duality. Loving-kindness is also a great cure for love, for being infatuated. It's interesting that metta is a good cure for love. And of course, lots of people are surprised to find out that love is a disease. But it is. It's less harmful, less problematic than anger, but it still has its problems. Dwelling on an exaggerated perception of the beautiful is the characteristic of love, what we call love, but it's not of metta. Metta doesn't dwell in an exaggerated form on some perceived beautiful quality. Metta is so beautiful in that it dissolves these two dualities, the fault and the exaggerated sign of the beautiful. It allows you to be sane and wise and perceptive. It allows you to see things, the beautiful, the fault, the unbeautiful, but without any accompanying distortion of emotion. You're left free in the midst of this world that has both characteristics in it, both the beautiful and the unbeautiful. You're left emotionally free, not cold, not uninvolved, but warmly free. Not everybody is able to intuit that another being has true metta. Yet a surprising spectrum of beings who are not perhaps well known for their sensitivity can sometimes be affected by metta. Sometimes there's an idea of radiation of metta and the kind of certainty that it will transform other beings out there, but that's not necessarily the case. Even the Buddha could not succeed in some of these cases. People had ill will toward him, and even the great metta he had did not overcome that. Or they walked right past him and did not register that this being was purified of all hostility and all prejudice, and also purified of lust. So we shouldn't exaggerate that. It's just that you may become dear to humans and non-humans. You may. But it's not an automatic thing at all. It depends a little bit on the receptivity of other beings. It's a very enjoyable hobby to see if people can feel your goodwill. You can try it without even saying a word. Just fill yourself with metta and see if you get any feedback from beings around you. And then, of course, try talking kindly to them as well. Try talking to people. Try talking to dogs. See how they respond when you're truly full of goodwill. I spend quite a bit of time talking to the marmots and rabbits here. Every day, how you doing, buddy? They can't quite pull themselves away. They know they should be taking care of themselves, running away, but at the same time, there is this curiosity. They keep coming back. What did he say? That was nice. I liked that. I like it when you talk to me. Oh, I gotta be going now. These are the benefits of loving kindness. The specifics should be reflected on and don't be too unsophisticated in the way you understand these things. Turn them over in your mind and ask about the protective quality of metta. We certainly know that certain emotions are very problematic for the body. 
There are psychosomatic illnesses, and I think it should be understood that the opposite occurs as well, that all kinds of physical manifestations could clear up with this type of emotion if it's held long enough, and if it's strong enough to go right into the dreams. By the way, you might be here in the monastery and you're thinking, wow, I really had a pretty bad dream two or three nights ago. I guess no loving kindness for me. That's an interesting phenomenon in monasteries, especially if you're going on a retreat and you have a pretty wild dream, kind of shocking, stuff like you haven't had for quite some time. I actually consider that to be a good phenomenon. I've had so many interviews over the years and lots of people come in and they don't even want to talk about it at first. They reluctantly say, well, I had this dream last night and it was kind of... uh..." I kept hearing this and then I realized it's actually positive. You're in an environment where the mind gets to explore some of its fears and doesn't need to keep them so strongly under wraps. It just says, it's now or never that I take a look at some of this stuff. I'm in a safe place. Where else? When will I do it if not now? So this stuff comes up, and it can be quite challenging. I usually talk to the person not so much about the contents, which can be murder and mayhem, wild, strange things, terrible things, but I ask them, how did you feel? It's not the contents so much, but the tone that is important. How did you feel about this? They often say they were strangely detached. There were a lot of beheadings and stuff, guts all over the place, things chasing you. And through it all, that strange kind of detachment. Of course, even consciously, when you're meditating, stuff comes up. But I think, if not now and not here, then where? This is a good place for it to come up and a good place to see how you really feel about the possibilities of life. How are you doing? There again is the idea that you sleep well, you wake well, and you have no bad dreams. Yes, I think you can get to that stage when you're absolutely saturated with loving kindness. It's in every molecule of your body. Remember how many repetitions he has well-practiced, well-started, over and over and over. If you were preparing to play the grand piano at Carnegie Hall, you'd need a lot of repetitions, a lot of practice. This really is that kind of practice. You're practicing an instrument that is every bit as sophisticated as classical music, and it requires the same kind of nuances, reflections. It's not mechanical, although there are mechanical aspects to it. Even when you don't feel like it, you say flatly, may you be well. You may not be inspired, but you have to say, may you be well. Try it again, this time with feeling, with some emphasis. May you be well. And again with more feeling. May you be well. Inject some energy into it. May you be well. And then eventually with true feeling, may you be well. You have to do it until you get it. It's not just notes anymore. The music starts to appear. How else would you do it? Sometimes you're totally uninspired. You start from zero. People wait as if it's going to descend on them. 
They think it's cheating to actually practice. It's not. That's how you do it. You work with a total lack of inspiration and you start to make a few notes sound good. You start to feel a bit. The Buddha talks about starting a fire. In those days, you started a fire with a bow drill. In other words, rubbing two sticks together, which is not an easy way to start a fire, believe me. He says if you stop every now and then, you lose it. Effort has to be constant and sustained until the spark appears. You can't start, stop, start, stop, drift away. It has to be constant until poof, fire. And then what? Do you watch it go out? No, you rapidly blow on it and add a little tinder to it, a little more, a little more, until you've got a roaring blaze. And then you can throw even big wet logs on it and they will burn up. Who is that big wet log? Could be you, could be your principal at high school, somebody you have problems with, wet logs. Do not try to start a fire with a wet log. Only when it's roaring can you throw anything and everything on it. That's the capacity to consume all enemies in the warmth of loving kindness. Anything can be thrown in then, but you don't start with a wet log. You don't hold a match under a wet log. Start with dry tinder and you build it up, build it up. It might require a lot of blowing and shielding it from the wind and shielding it from contrary voices. You have to be diligent in this, but you will be happy when it's going. You know, you can be living cold and wet like street people that can never get into the warmth. This is the nature of the mind if it's not taught these things. If it's not practiced well, you can get very cold, shivery, wet. You need to find your way back to the warmth of the fire. Watch people when they're cold and wet and they get in front of a fire. They're exhaling and commenting and their faces relax. They forget everything else, just the warmth. They just want to get close. They want to hug it, you know. This is a very beautiful thing. So these are the many benefits of loving kindness, and you can't reflect on it too often, as the Buddha said. Maybe you've heard me talk about this a few times, but all I can say is that the Buddha said I should over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm.